0: This is the United Methodist People podcast with Rev. Dr. Brad Miller. Episode number 37, featuring an interview with Rev. Michael Mather, the author of Having Nothing, Possessing Everything, Finding Abundant Communities in Unexpected Places.
1: And you know, whenever an angel shows up in the Bible, its first two words are, fear not. And I think one of the things that's beautiful about that is it's an awareness that fear is present. I think we have acted so fearfully that we have not had the courage to speak to things. You don't have courage when you don't have fear. You only have courage when
2: you have fear. Welcome to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to accomplishing the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The United Methodist People podcast helps clergy and church leaders connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from the people making a difference in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And now, here's Brad. Hello, good people. Welcome to the United Methodist
0: People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. It is our mission, it is our purpose, to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And we're happy to have with us today an author of a book called Having Nothing, Possessing Everything, Finding Abundant Communities in Unexpected Places. His name is... Reverend Michael Mather. He he and I happen to be good personal friends. We went to college together and spent a lot of time in ministry together. He is the minister of the pastor of the first United Methodist Church in Boulder, Colorado. But for 17 years prior to that, he spent in ministry at the Broadway United Methodist Church in the inner city of Indianapolis, Indiana, where he was involved with really cutting-edge urban ministries that spoke to the needs of underserved people in his community, and all kinds of things which were transformative. In fact, he talks about the transformation that takes place in mission and ministry. He describes it like living on the edge of a knife. I think you're going to love this conversation here today, because it's all about how we need to be bold and face our fears, and to know that the angels, uh, angels when they're describing the Bible, often said, fear not, but we have to be courageously to face our fears. And he talks, has some great stories to tell about his life in mission and ministry, about transformation that could take place. We have some great talks about his book and his points there, but about the stories of people that, he, uh, that his church has served, about people who have been transformed. You're going to find it very helpful to your mission and ministry as you go through this incredible time of transformation that is fearful in many ways. So we're going to talk about transformation and moving forward in faith. Here at the United Methodist People podcast, you can listen to some great back episodes of the podcast at unitedmethodistpodcast.com, facebook.com slash unitedmethodistpodcast, and catch back episodes of all kinds of things that are speaking to the life of the church. Right now, let's get into this great conversation we have with, with Reverend Mike Mather, pastor of First United Methodist Church in Boulder, Colorado, let's begin that conversation right now. Welcome to the podcast, the brand new pastor of First United Methodist Church in Boulder, Colorado, and formerly for 30-something years, pastors of two churches called Broadway United Methodist Church in in, in Indiana. His name is Reverend Mike Mather. Mike, welcome to the United Methodist People podcast.
1: Thanks, Brad. It's good to be
0: here. It is awesome to have you here with my, with you, my friend. You and I go back a long ways. We were from the same college, Evansville. We've known each other for a long time, and you have had just a great long uh, ministry serving in an urban setting and in the inner cities of Indianapolis and South Bend, Indiana, and now you find yourself in Boulder, Colorado. We're talking on June 30th of uh, 2020, and you actually have your first Sunday at your new church uh, in Boulder, Colorado, this uh, Sunday, and so we wish you well on that, and that'll be, be awesome for you, and you're going to do it remote, like we're all doing a lot of things the, these days. But I do That's want to ask you, Mike, as we get just to get started, because I like to ask almost all my guests this question to, initially: is okay. I just like to hear a little bit about your story, about how you came to faith in the first place, mm-hmm. and then kind of out of that, what led you into ministry, particularly the ministry you've been doing for the last number of years. Your faith story, sure.
1: Well, like you, Brad, I grew up um, in small in churches in southern Indiana. <laughs> My dad Absolutely. was a United Methodist minister, too. And um, I grew up in French Lick and Huntingburg and Whiteland, Indiana. Um, and w- I went off to college. Um, I, I um, joined the church in Whiteland when I was a kid and um, went on to college in. Uh, at the University of Evansville. And when I went to college, I was going to be a professional jazz trumpet player.
0: And I remember some of that. I remember you (laughs) practicing. Yes, that's right. And while I was there, I felt,
1: um, oh, probably in the third, we had trimesters there at the University of Evansville, sometime in the third trimester that I was being called into the ministry. And I didn't particularly care to do that. I didn't think that was a very good idea, um, but I felt like if the choice was between what I wanted and what God wanted me to do, I didn't figure I stood much of a chance.
0: So here I am today. Here you are today, and you have uh, served the church in an urban setting for a long time, and that led us, uh, led you to author a book a couple years ago, the title of which is Having Nothing, Possessing Everything, and the subtitle, Finding abundant communities in unexpected places. And a lot of that came out of your long attachment to urban inner city ministry. And I'd just like for you to share a little bit about the ministry you've been involved with at Broadway United Methodist Church and prior to that in Indianapolis for the last several years, just to describe the church, describe the setting, just to unpack your ministry you've had there for a while. A little bit later, we'll get into the book and some other things. Sure. So, um I came to Broadway
1: Church in nineteen eighty in Indianapolis in 1986 for the first time. Phil Amerson was the senior pastor there at Broadway at the time. And um, he asked if I would come and work with he and Marianne Moman um, at Broadway. My work where there was to run the neighborhood ministry. This um, So that church had been... Um, uh, a long time church in Indianapolis has had been at that location since 1919. And, um, in 19, late 1950s, white flights started happening and the neighborhood around the church became African American. People fled the church and, um, the church had decided to stay there and decided it wanted to be in ministry with the people who lived around it. So, um, They had developed a whole cohort of inner city ministries, and that was what it was my job to run and be a part of. And so they had after school programs, summer programs, feeding programs, Christmas programs, Thanksgiving (laughs) programs, just all the things you think of um, churches in
0: those settings doing. And then you were there for a while as an associate, and then you ended up going to the urban setting of South Bend and had a ministry there and then back to Broadway. And so you've been at Broadway, United Methodist Churches, for a long time, haven't you? 34
1: years. Yep. 30, 30. I, so, yes, I ran those programs in at Broadway in Indianapolis, and then um, Bishop Hodap sent me up to Broadway Church in South Bend. And then 11 and a half years, uh, in which the church up in South Bend was also an inner city community, as you mentioned. And then the bishops, uh, Bishop White, sent me back to Broadway Church in Indianapolis as um, the senior pastor there in 2003.
0: A lot of experience in the urban setting, and you learned a lot. And the small towns in Indiana, you mentioned earlier, I'm familiar with some of them. I've lived in some of the same places you've lived. And uh, know that it's a far cry from small-town rural Indiana to the urban settings that you have been in. So I'm wondering, this process, uh, what have you learned? Well, so? well,
1: I just want to say, it wasn't nearly as different as you'd think. Okay. <laughs> there were, a, in all those places, in Huntingburg, French Lake, and Whiteland, and inner-city Indianapolis, and inner-city South Bend, there were a lot of good folks and a few scoundrels. Of course. And... Um, of course. and You know, while I was in each of those places, that was my experience. In fact, the thing that I think is really very similar along those same lines is in small towns and in inner cities, things are very clear. You know you have problems. You can't pretend like you don't have problems. Um, And I think there are some other locations in our communities that that's an easier thing to pretend like things are all right when you parked in the parking lot at Broadway United Methodist Church in Indianapolis and got out of your car, you could see by the housing and by the condition of the streets that things weren't all right. And um, the churches were often wringing their hands, both in the urban and the rural areas about the way things used to be when things were grand and big and the old histories of it. And so um, people often were much more honest about how um, they felt and what was going on in their lives than in other places. A friend of mine um, attended a large church in the suburbs of Indianapolis. And he came to me one Sunday and he said, Mike, we had this speaker came and he said the most amazing thing. And we've all been talking about it. And I said, what was it? he said, man, we've been putting it out on social media and been telling, you know, and, and getting the word around. And I said, what did he say? And he said, even good people fail. And I thought, well, any place where that's news would be too hard for me to serve as pastor. I should say, wow. And, and in small towns... And, interesting
0: turn of... Interesting uh, thinking, isn't it? Interesting that's right. uh, way of thinking about things where the assumption is success, rather the assumption is the pain.
1: Well, or the assumption is that, you know, we're this complex mix of things, right? Yeah. And I thought if, if, if somebody thought that that was news then they would have had to have been in denial of all the things in their lives because success is not every part of our
0: lives. Mm-hmm. And so some great similarities there in the inner city. And uh, yet I know that you've really, really got involved with really, really, really serving the neighborhood in a very intimate uh, matter. I mean, you really ramped up in your time. There was already there, of course. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It really is uh, ramped up. And, I just wonder, what kind of got you influenced to be uh, to really dive into that? Were there some people or situations or conferences or anything that helped you just get a spark for getting going in this area? What are some of your influences? I wouldn't think uh, – I, I certainly can't think of any conference that ever did that for yeah, of me. Course. But, um,
1: but Emerson Apps, who was the chaplain at the University of Evansville when I was a student there. Mentor they, to both they, of us, Yes, yes. And Philip Amerson, who um, was at Patchwork Central in Evansville and who I didn't meet when we were in college in Evansville. But when I was in seminary, um, people suggested, since I was interested in urban ministry, I should go talk with Dick Hamilton. And I went to Dick Hamilton and he said, oh, you shouldn't talk to me. You should talk to Phil Amerson. And I went to Phil Amerson. And um, Phil's probably influenced me more than any other. Um, more than any other person in terms of how I live and, and um, work out my ministry and practice in the world.
0: And I might add that uh, Phil Amberson, a uh, former president of the Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary as well, and I believe in Claremont, California, will be a future guest here on the United Methodist People uh, podcast. Out of this process here, though, Mike, you uh, cared enough and were invested enough in urban ministry and in what happened what some of the great things that happened there and some of the challenges you have that you were inspired to write a book here a couple years ago and the title of the book is having nothing possessing everything and the subtitle finding abundant communities in unexpected places the title itself says a lot but i'd really like for you to just to take off on that for just a minute, what inspired you to write the book and give us the core message of what you have here. Well, I,
1: you know, actually Phil and I had talked about both writing something together um, for years and had never got around to it. And then um, Lily endowment came to me about six or seven years ago and said, we'd like you to write a book and we'll help support it because we like what you all are doing. And we think it's a story that needs to be told. So, on a very practical level, that's, that's what started it. Um, I just to say a word about what the book is about, because I think it's connected to the things you want to talk about, um, both in terms of justice and in terms of um, racism, in sure. the denomination and in the country and, um, and what you've talked about as the mission of the United Methodist church. Um, so I came out of seminary, really, I had worked in churches in Jersey City and Hoboken and Newark while I was in seminary at Drew University Theological School. I was really committed to the urban, um, to the urban community, and I wanted to help because there's nothing that a low-income community needs more than a young person with 19 years of education, um, behind them to solve their problems. There you go. So, I, I came in and um, so when I get to Broadway Church in Indianapolis the first time in 1986, I'm the first thing is there's summer program that's going on. And the summer program at the time was not bad, but it was basketball for the boys and cheerleading for the girls. And very painfully, we changed it over a couple of years and we built each week around a spiritual principle. We started every day with devotions. We ended every day with devotions. We had art, drama, recreation, music, history, math, Bible study, um, poetry, everything you could imagine for 250 young people, nine to five every day, broke my arm, patting myself on the back, felt so <laughs> good about all of us. It was awesome. awesome. You know, funders loved us, people around the state. Um, and and beyond looked at us and what we were doing i mean i felt great about it but the last nine months i was there in 1991 i did nine funerals for young men under 25 years old in the four block radius around our church building and it kicked the crap out of me
0: how devastating
1: and here I was thinking, oh, I'm doing all this good work. And people would say to me, but Mike, if you hadn't been doing this, it would have been even worse. And I said two things to that. One is, you're wrong. <laughs> and the second is, even if you're right, this isn't good enough. You know, most of those young people had grown up in and through the programming of the church. Here we are thinking we're doing so great and helping things, and young people are dying. and. It just knocked me over. The bishop sends me to this inner city church, a small inner city church in, in Indiana in South Bend called Broadway up there. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to do better. This is my chance to do better. <laughs> so I, I go up there and um, I go and and we have, it's this little church and we have a food pantry. There's 40 people in the church. And the church runs a food pantry there. And when people come and want food from the food pantry, we get government surplus funds. So we have a government surplus form. And the form says, how much is your income and how much your expenses? So it asks people, you know, prove to us how poor you are. So people would say, well, my income is $600 a month and my expenses are $1,200 a month. Well, we're a little congregation of 40 people. There's nothing we can do with that for one person, much right. less for all the people who come to us. And so, you know, well, what are we going to do about this, right? And so we just keep, you know, people come and we hand out the food. Well, that little church every Sunday, and this has been going on now for over 30 years, had, has lunch every Sunday for anybody who shows up for, um, for lunch, and so after worship, I would always go downstairs to eat lunch. And on Pentecost Sunday in 1992, I'm downstairs eating lunch. And if you sat with me, you could come talk about the sermon. You know, you can imagine that everybody wanted to Oh, yeah,
0: that. there you go. You yeah. were Mr. Popularity, I'm sure. <laughs>
1: So we're sitting around the table, and this woman says, you said— In your Pentecost sermon that Peter, reading from the book of the prophet Joel, says that God's spirit flows down on all people, young and old, women and men. And I'm like, how good am I? (laughs) I'm an excellent preacher. Somebody heard something, yes. It's a half an hour later, and she remembers what I said. I'm awesome. And I'm like, that's
0: right. And she says, so how come we don't treat people like that? Ooh. And I wow. Said, you so you went from a flying high and you got, your, <laughs> yeah. you got kneecapped, didn't you?
1: <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? She says, well, you know, you said God's spirit flows down on all people, young and old, women and men. But all you ask people about is how poor they are. If you believe that, how come you aren't asking people about that? It was a good question. So the very next day, we started asking people 10 pages of questions about what their gifts were. And I'm not talking about like the spiritual gift surveys that churches do. I'm talking about have you taken care of older folks? Have you taken care of children? Have you done it because you're on the job, because you're working somewhere, you know, um, because you've helped a neighbor
0: out? So really fix- practical, pragmatic, hands on right. type of things, right?
1: Can you fix a toaster? Can you drive a car? Do you play a musical instrument? Do you sing? Do you grow things? If you grow things, you grow flowers, should you grow vegetables. What do you grow? And this all came from the back of a little monograph Phil Amerson had given me years ago, written by John McKnight. <laughs> and it was a survey that they would do in Chicago for people in this in a laundromat in a low-income section of Chicago. Hmm. And I was like, well, we could use this here at the church. Why not? And do this and think about it. And so the, we asked three questions at the end. What three things do you do well enough you could teach somebody else how to do it? because everybody has something they could teach. What three things would you like to learn that you don't already know and who besides God and me is going with you along the way? So one of the first people who came to us was a woman who lived half a block from the church named Adele Almaguer. And she told us she was a good cook and we said, prove it. And she said, what do you mean? And we said, well, you know, cook for the custodian, the secretary and the pastor lunch on Friday. So she cooked for us. We paid her for it. It was great. So the leadership of the neighborhood organization was meeting. We said, don't meet somewhere else. Meet here at the church and let Adele cook for you. So she did. They loved it. They paid her for it. Over the next nine months, she cooked for three things in the neighborhood. The Studebaker Elementary School had a PTA meeting she cooked for. The Southeast Side Neighborhood Health Center um, had an open house. They needed food. She provided it. Memorial Hospital in, in South Bend had a press conference in our neighborhood. They needed food. She provided it. Then the Chamber of Commerce called. We want to have an all-day meeting of our leadership program in your church building. Well, that day works. We can do that. Well, since we're going to be there all day, we need to use your kitchen. They said, you can use our kitchen, but we would prefer you use our caterer. Mm. And they said, okay. So we took 20 bucks, bought Adele 1,000 business cards. They said, la chaprite catering, spunky Tex-Mex food. <laughs> she led 70 of the business and civic leaders in the community. They passed out her business card to everybody there. Through that, she got connected to the Michiana Business Women's Association. And a year and a half later, she opened up Adelita's Fajita's at the corner of 8th and Harrison and Man, what,
0: what a yep, story. Because um, what you did is you transformed. You know, I want you to finish your story, but what you, I heard you transformed. The transformative piece I'm hearing is you're going from the church, uh, making the step of faith on their own, to provide a meal, and then she, one of the people being served, stepped up to make a contribution. So it's not just a point of receiving ministry. It is engaging the teamwork, the partnership with with people. And everybody wants to be wanted, don't they? Everybody wants to make a contribution. Absolutely. Everybody. And that was the thing. All of a
1: sudden, it's like, this is what I believe. You know, why don't I? You know, I didn't have to change my theology. This fit my theology. This fit our baptismal theology. And I'm like, then why haven't I ever thought of this before? And I realized it was because all our practices are built around scarcity. Mm. And all we think about is what we don't have rather than what we do have and what the people in front of us don't have. And... You know, in this present moment that we are in right now with what's going on in this country, not only with the pandemic, but the awareness that's growing now among all parts of the population about what's been happening to black and brown people of color in this country for a long time. One of the things that's clear is that the mission I had been involved with in the past was racist. (laughs) I was looking at people for what they didn't have, not for what they did have. I thought I was there to make a contribution to their life rather than that God had poured stuff into them to offer, not to me, not even to the church, but to the world. And that what Adele didn't need a training program, Adele needed somebody who could see and believe in her gift. Yes. And because of the way I had thought I was supposed to do ministry, because of the ways we often do mission and ministry I was not able to see that even
0: though it was true all along. And if yet I, you said it wasn't for them. It wasn't for you, but in the process, the transformative process, everybody was raised. Everybody absolutely. was elevated and it's and on an equal setting. And it seems to me that's what Jesus was trying to do when he elevated the people in a low position and he kind of cut the people in a high position down to size as he wanted the level, level the playing field as it were. And, and, uh, so you've seen some real gems. That's awesome. It also comes into, I'm thinking this uh, reminds me of one of the key scriptures I know you've talked about a little bit, and that's the stories in Matthew 25, and you talk in your book about being a Matthew 25 Christian. And i just like you to connect a little scripture mm. foundation to what we've been talking about here. What makes a Matthew 25 Christian, my friend?
1: Well, again, in Matthew twenty-five, that was what I thought about all the time. You know, the thing about Jesus saying, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, all those type of things. You know, visit the prisoner. Um, But what I had missed in that passage, Matthew twenty-five, is is the way Jesus talks about people as these are your brothers and sisters. Now, if your brother showed up at your house and said, "Hey, I don't have any food," you would not say to your brother. Hey, there's a great food pantry down the street, and you can go there on Monday, Wednesday, or Friday. You've got to have an ID, and and you can only go there once every three months. No, you'd say, come on in, sit down, let's have a meal, let's share in this. And again, I hadn't had practices that thought about things in that way. Yeah. That is the way I had been trained and taught and thought about things was, you know, I'm here to provide a service to these people rather than to see God has poured out gifts in the hearts and lives of these people. And it's my calling to live into it. It's a little bit like that one miracle that appears in all the gospels, right? The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 or the multitudes or whatever is it was already there. (laughs) <laughs> the disciples didn't couldn't see it, which I take great comfort in, I might say
0: yes.
1: yeah, um the disciples didn't see it. it was right in front of them and in in John six in that story, at the end of it, Jesus tells the disciples after they fed the five thousand to gather up the fragments, you know, and it mm-hmm. says they gather up even more than they started with, right. In John 10:10 it says Jesus says I come that you may have life abundant. Yes. In the original language where it says I came that you may have life abundant, it is the same word that's used in John 6 when Jesus says when Jesus says gather up the fragments. Wow. It's gather up the abundance that's there all around you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we live, in a, we live in a time right now, though, Mike, where a lot of people aren't seeing that, are they? They're not seeing the abundance. They're not seeing, the, they, there's a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of depression. Uh, there's a lot of things happening in the world right now. The COVID virus is a real thing. Absolutely. We all have to deal with it. You know, I've had family members impacted by it, uh, people, church folks and other people impacted by it. Uh, churches are not uh, churches and businesses are economically impacted and so on people and certainly the situation uh, racially in our country and matters of justice or injustice are making a lot of people thinking very insecure and very uh, seeing things for what they don't have and there they react fearfully and i've been preaching recently from uh, from first john where it says perfect love cast out fear be fully formed in love which is this transformative thing we're talking about here what are some of the things that we, those churches, those folks, maybe particularly white folks who are living in fear or living in lack or living in, you know, white prestige or whatever it be or suburban affluence, whatever it is. What are some of the things that we can learn from some of the things that you've experienced that were transformative to you personally and to the churches? What are some things that we can learn from these experiences from folks like you've mentioned here? Well, I think just by beginning to see and know
1: the power and the stories and trust them that are in the lives of people that you, that we often have thought of as the people were there to help. One of the things I said years ago on a Sunday morning sermon was stop helping people. Mm. <laughs> um, and by that, I mean, you know, start trusting that people around you have something to offer. And not you or the church, but have something to offer the world. And I think beginning to treat people like that, Rachel, you know, Rachel Matheny, who's one yes, of the Yes, I worked with for a lot of time, years, met with a group of young people who are blind. And she said to them, how does the seeing world treat you? And they said, that's the long, wrong language. And she said, I don't understand what you mean. And they said, it's not the seeing world, it's the sighted world. And she said, I don't understand. And they said, just because you have sight doesn't mean you can
0: see. Mm, wow. Oh, man, that was so true for me. And that's, and that's straight from Jesus, too. The blind see, <laughs> the blind let that's the blind. That's right. You know, the Don't mud you on the eyes and the whole bit, right? So, okay. Yes. So, I mean, I think
1: the biggest challenge for us, so. I think in recovery movements, people have this right. When we say in recovery movements that we don't think our way into new ways of acting, we act our way into new ways of thinking. So we have to develop new practices. We had to, the hard thing isn't doing the new thing where you're paying attention to the gifts of the people. The hard thing is stopping doing the old thing.
0: (laughs) Mm, Wow. Wow.
1: I think when you talk about what lessons I've learned from this, the, the two things I think I've learned is that we need to grieve more and we need to celebrate more.
0: Yes.
2: We need to
1: grieve more the things that are no longer going on and say, thank you, well done, good and faithful servant, for this program we ran many years doing things in this way. And now let's try and imagine and trust something new.
0: Very interesting that you say that, Mike, because I've noticed a phenomenon as we go through this period of great uh, unrest and, you know, speaking to, to social and racial injustice, particularly in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, where folks, had, white folks primarily have been much more aware of things, much more limited, at least is my take on things. And they see it not just as a moment, but a movement. You know, this is happening here. But also how the process then of the demonstrations and stuff started off agitated and in some cases violent. And that really scared a lot of folks. But then in many cases, it evolved into a celebration. In many cases, it evolved to more like a parade and singing and dancing and other things happening because people were had some time to vent and grieve and then were celebrating. And, and so I just have that observation, and I wanted to, get your take on things, I just kind of want your take on what is happening in our world right now, uh, and how the church relates to that, this whole thing of the unrest that's going on, of justice and injustice. Give me Mike Mathers' take. Well, I would say a couple things. One is, something is becoming clear to
1: white America that has been very clear to black America for (laughs) centuries, right? Mm Right.
0: It's an illuminating and, moment, it really is.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is kind of fascinating that, you know, I mean, Brad, you probably remember this, but in Indianapolis in the 1980s, um, there was a young man named Michael Taylor who was shot, at, who shot and died in the back of a police car, yes. handcuffed with his hands behind his
0: back. Yes, very big story. And,
1: and, yes. and, and the police claimed that he shot himself. <laughs> yes, after they had searched him, handcuffed him with his hands behind his back in the back right.
0: of the police. And there was all kinds of investigations, and I have to be honest with you, I have lost track of what how that played out.
1: Well, there was never charges brought, but there was a civil suit brought in Hamilton County um, against the police officer, and actually, the civil suit the family won, <laughs>
0: okay.
1: um, but um, in Hamilton County, no less. But wow. um, but there was never a criminal case against and all I'm saying is this is not new it happened a long time before then it happened in that time back in the 1980s and it's happened continuously up until this present moment
0: well it's not just a matter of uh, 40 minutes or 40 years it's 400 years or exactly. whatever it is it goes back exactly. to the whole history of our country it just we are in a moment it seems to me we're in a, a limited moment we have a opportunity for either a total collapse of everything or an opportunity for something new to happen. And uh, I'm we'll see how it shakes out. But I have I have at least a little bit of hope that we can see some transformation. Uh, well, and I think what, you know, this pandemic moment is
1: interesting with this because it's like we can't do business as usual. Okay. If we can't do business as usual, then what does it look like new? People can't do, you know, the types of feeding programs and the type of after-school programs and the stuff that they were doing um, when we weren't in a pandemic moment. But now that we have, this is like the moment when we can imagine this differently, when we can think about this differently, when we can do this differently, when we can act our way into a new way of thinking. And so there's possibility for me in this moment that I see because we're just forced out of the, we can't do things the way we have been doing, whether that's worship on Sunday morning or any of the other types of things we did all during the week. Sure.
0: Well, hopefully it's a time when we can kind of reset things, recalibrate things instead of just spiraling into despair and depression and things like that, which seems to me both are opportunities and some may go both ways, but I'm hoping for myself at least and for people I've been talking to They're taking some opportunities to rethink both personally on a spiritual level and in how we do church. And so I'd like to talk to you now a little shop on how we do church in the United Methodist Church and how some of the things we've been talking about here may be helpful or can speak to the issues in the church. And just give me right now your kind of take on the state of affairs in the United Methodist Church and how some of these transformative thinking might be applicable to what we're dealing with in our church.
1: Well, I... I think, um, and this is to the point of what you've been saying, that this moment is um, maybe makes it more likely that some things can happen and be done in a new way, in a new direction. With what's happening in our denomination right now, with the division around sexuality, gives us a chance to be honest with each other. The problem is, from my perspective, is that we haven't been talking about these things for a long, long, long time. Um, You know, a a couple of years ago, or last year, after the new special general conference, um, one of the things that I remember happening is I went to a district gathering where the district superintendent was asked by somebody in the, um, in a 70-year-old person from a One of the congregations in the district there, and said, "Hey, um, you know, what can I say to my friends who read Franklin Graham and say that people who are homosexual are going to hell?" And the district superintendent, who had been in conference leadership for over twenty years, said, "You know, I, I don't know that I what I can say to that. I imagine there are people in the room who can come up with better answers." This is the problem: we have not been talking with each other even the conference leadership. So when our
0: own silos and occasionally throwing hand grenades at one another and just not helpful.
1: So the thing is, if we can begin to talk with one another and listen to one another in this time and not avoid these hard conversations, whether it's about race or sexuality, but be honest and open with each other. I mean, that's hard. I know, but this moment I think is pregnant with possibility for being able to do that, for living into that, for changing our practices so that we can begin to change our mind. If if you, you know, one of the things I learned about this a lot was from Marianne Moment and Phil Amerson when I was at Broadway the first time. Back in the 1980s, Broadway was opening itself up to the conversation about GLBT stuff. They didn't avoid it, but they the only two choices were not bash one another over the head with it or avoid it altogether. The only two choices were not nuke people or do nothing. Mm, (laughs) I remember there were young gay men who were starting to come to Broadway in those years. And Phil and Marianne asked those young gay men and asked the leaders of the largest Sunday school classes, could these young gay men, could you have one of them come in every week for four weeks and just tell their stories? They're not going to be there to say something political. They just want to tell their stories and you can ask them whatever you want. And they agreed to do that. That didn't mean they were there to push a political agenda or anything, but just to listen to one another. I mean, I thought this was brilliant. Um, you know, and we have, um, we don't have these conversations. And um, I wrote to um, one of our bishops not too long ago, Because I said, look, you know, what's happening in terms of gentrification in cities right now is that the suburbs are going to become the new inner cities, right? Um, um, Because the cities are becoming the place where wealthy people are coming back. And so people in the neighborhood around Broadway Church in Indianapolis are being moved a lot out to the Far East Side. And when I say out to the Far East Side, I mean east of 465, east of the ring around the city. And I went and visited parishioners from our neighborhood who'd been moved out there and they were living in places that were surrounded by 12 feet high of, um, you know, fencing. And when you went into that area, the the condos that are there are falling apart and the streets are broken and buckled and the sidewalks aren't. And that's out by Mount Comfort. That's (laughs) really close to Mount Comfort. Well, when, when, when poor people first moved into the neighborhood around Broadway in Indianapolis, Broadway in Indianapolis was not ready for it. And I remember saying to, um, you know, superintendents and the bishop, you know, we have people at Broadway who live through all this, and we're happy to have the, the people who live through all this come and tell you all the mistakes we made.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And nobody Telling the ever story. On it. Now really? maybe there's yeah, a am- chance to do that.
0: Yeah, what I'm hearing you say is the importance of storytelling and listening, and I think this goes to how we treat one another with dignity and with uh, understanding that character does count, and things like uh, observing and appreciating talent and these type of things, and we haven't always listened to that, and therefore resources have become, or the identification resources have become a problem.
1: You know, Brad, you were talking a few minutes ago about fear. And I think that is, I think you're exactly right, that this is a big part of things. And, you know, whenever an angel shows up in the Bible, its first two words are fear not. Mm. And I think one of the things that's beautiful about that is it's an awareness that fear is present. I think we have acted so fearfully that we have not had the courage to speak to things. You don't have courage when you don't have
0: fear. You only have courage when you have fear. Sure, sure. And we live in this time that's a bit fearful in terms of the world. But yes. if we follow the scriptural mandate, it is to face fear with faith and with love, perfect love, cast out fear. And uh, so that's our that's our dream. That's our opportunity. That's our church is in a time of crisis on human sexuality and a number of other issues. Uh, but we do have some opportunity, whether we take advantage of it or not, is remains to be seen, doesn't it? So I think well, I, Go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well,
1: I, I was just going to say, yes, this is this is a chance when we can begin to see that when we're freed from our fear because we can't do things the same old way. So we've got to what it was that Martin Luther said, sin boldly.
0: Mm. So there you go. <laughs> That doesn't mean out of fear, not out of feet. Well, that gives you uh, another opportunity right now, my friend, to do some bold stuff if you choose to. You've uh, had a long, and from my eye as your colleague and friend for a long time, just a really magnificent run in ministry at Broadway Churches. And now you face a new opportunity in Boulder, Colorado, at First United Methodist Church. And I know it may be a little bit unfair because you've never even even had a first Sunday there yet but what drew you to this new bold adventure and what do you see some of the opportunities and some of the challenges that you're going to face there that perhaps you've been prepared for maybe God's calling you this new thing for a new reason so
1: well the first thing I would say what called us into this was that our son and his wife moved um, out here to Denver and on March 30th our granddaughter was born that'll do it that'll do it (laughs) right there And, um, our only grandchild and we, um, and I had reached out to the, the, the cabinet and the bishop out here in, um, big mountain sky conference and asked them if they would, um, have anything. I wasn't looking to move, but if they had something out here, I'd be open to it. And a couple weeks later, and they called and said, we've got a place for you. So. The reason for this calling is the calling as grandparents.
2: That's um, a great one.
1: I'm, I'm thrilled to be going to, to First Church Boulder. It is a very, very different setting. One of the things that's been interesting in terms of the conversations with me that the people have had here is one of the people keeps saying to me, you know, I'm afraid you're going to find us really boring compared to what you where you've been. And I said, you know, my experience has taught me that people are endlessly fascinating. God is at work in every community, in everybody, and and the chance to have, to go along with these people on what that means in this place, I'm very excited about. And I'm happy to be here for the long haul with them in that. I told them, I don't intend to do this for a couple of years and retire. I want to I want to do this for um, however long uh, the denomination will allow me to. And I'd like to be here and doing it. Awesome.
0: Well, that's good to hear. And I just wanted to kind of bring our conversation back around. We've talked about a number of pretty intense things here today about uh, social justice and racism and poverty and things like that. And uh, challenges and some great, great, great uh, stories. You're a great storyteller. You always have been. And even I could uh, probably tell some of your stories of that with really long tales from the back of our college days. But that's <laughs> a story. But um, I just want to know, really, just kind of sum everything up. What do you see, Mike, as as signs of hope, a vision for the future, uh, for our our church and for our communities? Uh, we've got lots of challenges before us, to be sure. What are some signs of hope moving forward?
1: To me, the great signs of hope that I've seen in the places around me is, you know, people who other people have often thought of as poor and um, uh, with all sorts of problems, and every, but now starting to see people as gifted who have something to offer. And, you know, if you allow me to tell one other little story. Go for it. Um, Okay, so Diamon Hargis, a layperson at Broadway in Indianapolis, because of the way in which Diamon, who never graduated from high school, but who is a genius of community, has been a part of the life of Broadway Church, where he's a member, and has been a part of the life of his neighborhood, where he is a neighbor, is because of the way in which he understands being a Christian in mission, it has meant in the past two years over a million and a half dollars going into the hands of low income people in his neighborhood, not in services, in cash.
0: Wow. And that alone that is transformative. Never,
1: that it was never something we could do individually, right? As the con, That we corporately as a congregation could do. It was what people could do in that. Then the other thing I would say that I see as a sign of hope is to move discipleship from being something that I see discipleship being moved as something that we think of as something done corporately by the body of the church, as something that is done by the people of the church in their lives in the world. There is a lay person at Broadway in Indianapolis named Hope Tribble, who because of her work and calling in the mayor's office in Indianapolis has done something that has, that causes now over 1,000 people a year, over 1,000 people a year, being bailed out of jail through something called the Bail Project, which is a national um, thing that's gone on. She brought it there. She would tell you that the reason she brought it there was because of her faith and because of her involvement with Broadway United Methodist Church. Broadway could have never done that corporately but she could do it through the way in which she lived out her faith in the world. Because of that, there are a thousand families who didn't lose their parent during this time. There are a thousand people who um, who didn't lose their jobs because of this. That is something much bigger than we ever did in any of the programmatic stuff we did as a church. Where do I see hope? I
0: see hope be in those two places. Um, What an awesome story to kind of wrap things up in our conversation here, Mike, in a sense of that you're just talking about kind of the transformation from kind of a corporate top-down model to more of a a collegial partnership model where everybody is in this together. We're all a team. We're all in this together. And it seems to me that's a pretty Christian thing to be about, where uh, Jesus was certainly spoke to the people in a low position in life, you know, the prostitutes, the people in the fields, the fishermen, and so on, brought them up, took the Pharisees and some others, brought them down, and said that and his love for is for all of us equally, of all parts of life, and that uh, and there's no fear, and uh, perfect love casts out fear. And the book, the, t- the title of your book, I think, uh, says a lot about what we've been talking about here, and how we can start to pay attention to these things, be a noticer of people be a noticer pay attention and that the title of your book, uh, Mike is having nothing, possessing everything, finding the abundant communities in unexpected places. And I assume folks can get this at Amazon and other places that they want to get it as, as well. Folks, very anywhere. (laughs) Awesome. They can write me. (laughs) Well, we will, uh, we'll put all that in our show notes and, uh, well, I want you to share how they can write you, email you, or whatever you want to say, and, and they'll sub so be an audio, and then I'll put in the show notes as well. How can people get a hold of you?
1: So they can email me at Mike D, like dog, D, Mather, at gmail.com, um, or they can text me at 317-696-5699. Awesome.
0: Well, what a pleasure, and what a joy for me. We go back uh, – I hate to say how long we go back, but it's, <laughs> no. but it's uh, several decades, let me put it that way, yes. and it goes uh, into the 1970s, I hate to say that, but it, it, does. Does. it does, but uh, you're a great friend, you're a great transformative powerhouse of a person, and God has done a great work through you and will continue to do great work through you, and that's an awesome thing, I'm proud to say that that uh, you're my friend, and I look for more good things coming out from you, and I hope. Uh, some other uh, books and other things coming out of you. I think you maybe, maybe, uh, uh, maybe an online course or something like this. Maybe some. Well,
1: actually, um, Diamond Harges, who I just mentioned, and Shauna Murphy and
0: I are writing a new book. Awesome. So, yes. We will we'll look forward to that. When it comes back around, we'll have another conversation. He is the author of Having Nothing, Possessing Everything, and the pastor, soon to be a pastor, of First United Methodist Church in Boulder, Colorado my friend, Reverend Mike Mather. Thank you for joining us today on the United Methodist People Podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. I just want to thank uh, Mike Mather for being my guest today here on the United Methodist People Podcast. Uh, It was some points of personal privilege for me to have a conversation with him. He and I are great friends. We go back to our college days together, and I just remember lots of long talks in our dorm rooms talking about uh, mission and family and churches and life together, and how we really were called to be impactful, to be instruments of God into this world and to the local church. And, and I know that he certainly has been a bold leader, an innovative leader, a transformative leader in that. So I hope that you heard uh, the stories that he told and take that to heart. And check out his book, Having Nothing, Possessing Everything, Finding Abundant Communities in Unexpected Places. A couple takeaways I just wanted you to hear was his thoughts about hope for the future. is not a corporate top-down type thing in the United Methodist Church, but it is a community, a true community, where even those who many people consider the poor or with problems or persons we may see in the light of the context of their life and ministry of having not quite and uh, much to offer, as some people might think. But he shows us how those are the people, those are the people in our neighborhoods and community that are gifted and have something to offer in mission. And discipleship is done through all kinds of people in all kinds of ways. It's not a corporate thing. It's a personal community thing. And I think especially in this time of upheaval and as we transition in our United Methodist Church to whatever is happening, let's remember that's about relationships relationship with jesus christ first and foremost and relationships with one to another and the building of community and wherever that comes from it's impactful so i just want to thank mike for being our guest here today listen to this podcast pick up his book look for more stuff to come from mike uh, as well moving forward as he has a lot more things to offer here at the united methodist people podcast we offer you an opportunity To listen to great speakers and authors and bishops and teachers and leaders who can speak into your life to help strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church. Yes, even in this time of turmoil to strengthen the connection in order to achieve our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. I'm here to be helpful. My name is Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, a local church pastor in Indianapolis, been in ministry for 40 years, love doing what I'm doing. You want to reach out to me, you can do so through the website unitedmethodistpodcast.com or through the Facebook page facebook.com slash United Methodist Podcast. until next time friends it's been good to be with you and I want to encourage you to always in our tradition as United Methodists in the Westland
2: tradition to always do all the good that you can thanks so much for listening to the United Methodist People Podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller You can continue the conversation and commentary about strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church to accomplish our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Visit the United Methodist People podcast on the web at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and connectedfacebook.com slash unitedmethodistpodcast and always do all the good you can.